Evening, everyone. And thanks, David and Andy and Glenn and Amy and Drew and Johnny and Tim. Uh, tonight's paradox, and, and for ever, anyone who's visiting or is maybe new to this series, uh, we, uh, we, we've spent six nights now confronting, and I, I think that is the right word, confronting a number of paradoxes that we find in Scripture concerning God. But tonight's paradox is definitely one of the most troubling. Uh, and I will guarantee you that, that all of us have thought about it, we've questioned it, we've queried it, we've wondered about it, we've debated about it. And just before we name it, let me just show you a list of the paradoxes that we have considered during this series. And, and we've been using uh, this book by Krish Kandaya as, as our guide and sort of for our reflections. But so far, we have thought about the God who needs nothing and yet demands everything. Week two, the God who is so close yet so far away. Week three, the God who is terribly compassionate. Thought about Joshua's story. The God who is actively inactive, and we looked at Job. The God who is faithful to the unfaithful, we looked at Hosea. The God who is consistently unpredictable was two weeks ago, and that's when we looked at Habakkuk. And as we have looked at each of these, I think we've been discovering, or at least I hope we have, that although these paradoxes can be confusing, they can be unnerving, they also have the potential to inspire greater worship. And, and that's why this series is called Paradoxology, because a doxology is an expression of praise. And therefore, as we confront these apparent contradictions, it is our hope that our understanding and our appreciation of God will expand. And as a result of our expanding understanding of God, we will worship. So paradoxology. But what about tonight's tension? Well, if you are a Christian, and, and I am going to kind of assume that that's, that's probably the majority of people here, but if you are a Christian, have you ever wondered why me? Now, I don't mean why is this or why is that happening to me. I mean, and that's a fair enough question to ask, but that, that's not the why me question I want us to think about. What I do mean is, do you ever think, why did God save me? Why did God rescue me? Why did God choose me and not them? Not that person. Why was I born into a Christian home and therefore stood a far greater chance of finding Jesus compared to a person who's born into a family, born into an environment, born in a country where the odds are far higher? Why? How do you get your head around a God who loves the whole world and yet only draws some people to himself? How come God can be indiscriminate in his love and yet selective in those he chooses? Those are good questions, aren't they? <laughs> those are huge questions. They're difficult questions. And so our paradox this evening confronts the concern about a God who is indiscriminately selective. Now, it's not so much of a disclaimer. Well, actually it is. But right up front, I've got to be honest and say this is a really tough one. And it's not that the others haven't been tough. 
They've all been tough. But this one, this one has caused and causes endless debates and discussions. And therefore, I have to be honest and say, it's impossible for me in 20, 25 minutes to adequately address this paradox. And so probably all I'm going to do for lots of people tonight is just frustrate you. Okay, so it's good to just know that up front. You're just going to leave here frustrated, all right? But you do need to have realistic expectations, all right? You really do. But here's the tension. The Bible does make it really clear that God rules over all the earth. God is in control. I mean, that's something we've been saying here mornings and evenings for quite some weeks, it seems. God loves all people, irrespective of class and culture and gender or race, but the Bible also reveals that God chose one single nation out of all the nations to call his chosen people. And most of the Old Testament then concerns itself with this one nation of Israel and God's promise to be their God and for them to be his people. Come into the New Testament and John tells us the most famous verse in all the world, for God so loved the whole world that he sent Jesus. But then Jesus comes and talks about a narrow road that few would find. Or he talks about the many who are invited, but few are chosen. And so the Bible does appear to teach that God is both indiscriminate in his love and yet selective in his choices. And so that just raises a whole pile of questions, doesn't it? Does God have favorites? Does God cherry pick? What does it mean that God, with all his grace and compassion, does not help and cause and enable everyone to come to faith in Jesus the way he has helped and enabled and caused me to come to Jesus? Why? Well, this is a very similar problem and dilemma that was faced by the Old Testament prophet, Jonah. Jonah, who is generally associated with the whale, but for the purposes of this paradox, it's probably better to think of Jonah and the worm, which I know most of you realize appears at the end of the story. Jonah has been described as the best and the worst prophet in Israelite history. Why was he the worst? Well, he was the worst because he just about did everything wrong, as we'll see. But he was also the best, or definitely one of the most successful of his time, because the message that Jonah brought actually led to the astonishing full-scale revival in a most unlikely place and city. Jonah's whole story, if you like, is packed with contradictions and paradoxes. If you have a Bible, please uh, turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. It's page 927 if you want to follow it in the Red Pew Bibles. And right from the word go, it opens like lots of other prophetic books, including Hosea that we did consider a few weeks ago. So look at verse 1. It says this, the word of the Lord came to, and in this case came to Jonah. So in a sense, as you start reading this particular Old Testament prophetic book, it's so far so normal. But then, unlike Hosea, who, as we saw a few weeks ago, immediately obeyed the call to go and marry a promiscuous woman, Jonah, on the other hand, who was simply given a message to share with the city of Nineveh, he doesn't obey. He blatantly disobeys. He decides that he'd rather go anywhere else, do anything else, and so 
he boards a ship and he heads in the opposite direction. This is atypical of a prophet. Most of them did what they were asked to do. Even if the instructions were surprising like they were to Hosea, go and marry a promiscuous woman, okay, God, I'll do that. But not Jonah. He doesn't obey. And his reaction is even more unusual given the nature of his message. Because the nature of his message was this. Go and preach against, to quote verse 2, go and preach against Nineveh, an enemy of God's chosen people. Surely that's a dream job for a prophet. Certainly an Israelite prophet. Dream job. Let me add them. But no, rather than take up this God-given opportunity, Jonah does a runner. And as we all know, trying to hide or run away from God is, is futile. It's pointless. And so God pursues Jonah. And as Jonah sits huddled up in a boat heading for Tarshish, a storm brews up which is so powerful that even the seasoned sailors who are on board the ship are frightened for their very lives. But somehow Jonah sleeps. And eventually the, the, the sailors, the pagan sailors, wake him up and get him and ask him to pray, which in itself is amusing. And then they try to discern, they try to work out, well, look, who is responsible for this calamitous storm? Look at verse 7. Who's responsible? And so what they decide to do, they decide to cast lots, because that's how they're going to suss out who's responsible. And the lot falls on Jonah. And Jonah's then forced to admit, you know something, I am a worshiper. To quote the law of the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And the terrified sailors believe him, believe that is who he is. But you know what they can't believe? They can't believe what he's done. They can't believe that he is doing a runner from his God. Look at verse 10, that's what it says. They cannot get their heads around what this guy is doing running away from his God. And so they say to Jonah, okay, Jonah, so what should we do? How can we make this sea calm? And Jonah says, look, chuck me overboard. And initially they can't, they won't do it, so they try everything else, and so they start rowing as hard as they can back to shore, but they realize that they can't do that in this storm. And so once they've exhausted all the possibilities, they relent, and they pray to this newfound God. And they ask this newfound God of theirs not to hold them accountable for what they're about to do, for killing an innocent man, to quote verse 14. And so once they have prayed, they then throw Jonah overboard into the raging sea. And as Jonah sinks, the storm is stilled. And what do the sailors do? They worship. It's really important to get this. They worship. Their respect and their awe of the Lord God of the Hebrews increases as they make sacrifices and as they make commitments, they make promises. And isn't it ironic, and this is a bit of a kind of side note, but isn't it ironic that even in his disobedience, Jonah makes a profound impact on these frightened sailors? And so we should never underestimate what God can do through us, even though it seems highly unlikely given where you're at and what you're doing. Never underestimate God. 
He can still use us in our disobedience. These sailors, these pagan sailors, they're the ones that come across as the most honorable people in the story to date. Jonah ignores and disobeys God, whereas these sailors, despite being from an unnamed and thus unquestionably non-chosen nation, seek God, find God, obey God, pray to God, confess to God, worship God. That in itself is a clue for what's to come as we attempt to confront this paradox. And so the next twist in the tale comes as we discover how the same God who sends the storm to remove Jonah then sends a fish to rescue him. See, God arranges both the crisis and the solution. Again, there's probably lots to say even in that comment, but, but I don't have time. And in the belly of this whale, this large fish, Jonah spends three days and three nights and he, he prepares a song of repentance and praise and he sings it and he's then vomited out on the dry land. And once he's there, he's recommissioned and he's re-instructed to go to Nineveh. And again, let me just make the point, God of the second chance. God, God of the second chance. We give up on God, God doesn't give up on us. And this time, Jonah accepts. But as you read the story, it's pretty obvious that Jonah wasn't chosen because of his trustworthiness. He wasn't certainly chosen because of his faithfulness. He wasn't chosen because of his courage. And as the story progresses, we also see that as well as being cowardly and faithless, he's also a grumpy person. It's close, close, very close. He's all... He's also a grumpy person, and he's resentful. Jonah clearly wasn't chosen by God because of any moral superiority, and that in itself serves as a clear reminder to Israel that their call to be God's chosen people was not due to them being any better than anyone else. It's really important for them to know that, to get that, to understand that. Jonah is no hero. He slept while brave soldiers prayed and toiled. And while this rogue prophet ran away and hid, God did everything possible, including fixing the weather, fixing the lots, and fixing a freak of nature to make it possible that this message does indeed get to the Ninevites. This story cuts through the sense of national superiority the Jews may have tended to feel towards other nations. And the same logic applies in the New Testament. It is not because of any moral superiority or intellectual ability that God chooses anyone to be included in his family. The, the, the doctrine of grace, this unmerited favor of God towards us, prevents any sense of entitlement or any sense that we're better than anyone else. And as Paul makes clear to Titus, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. But listen, it's not because of righteous things we have done. It's all because of God's mercy. It's all because of God. And the Jonah story proves that God cares for all nations just as he did for Israel. That no one is beyond the reach. No one is beyond God's forgiveness. 
so important we get that. And so Jonah goes to Nineveh. And he shares this message. And what was the message he had to share? It was a message of impending judgment. And the city is so big that it says it takes Jonah three days to get across at sharing this message. And everyone hears it and they respond. And the king of Nineveh also hears it. And he reacts and he reacts positively. And he, like many of the people, he puts on sackcloth and ashes the outward signs of deep sorrow and mourning. And he gets off his throne and he sits in the dust and he invites everyone in that city. And remember, there are 120,000-ish people there, according to the end of chapter 4. He invites everybody to call urgently on the God of Jonah. And he orders a nationwide fast that included even the livestock. And why? Why did he do this? Well, because who knows, to quote Jonah 3, verse 9, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And this certainly seems to be genuine repentance. A genuine understanding of who God is. And as a result, God responds, and God relents, and God does not bring on this city the destruction that he had threatened. And so Jonah becomes the most successful prophet ever. As one writer states, when the word of God comes to the pagan nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh through such a useless prophet as Jonah, the whole city repents right down to their livestock. Now, I'm not sure about the whole livestock. Don't ask me, is your dog in heaven? Okay, let's not just go there. Let's forget that bit, okay? But God offers grace to the pagan city of Nineveh. He holds out forgiveness to the enemies of God's people. God's not partisan. God is not prejudiced. And in the end, we are not judged on the basis of our ancestors, our genetics. We, like everyone else, how will we be held accountable to God? What will we be held accountable for God for? For how we respond. That's what we are held accountable for. Just like the Ninevites. How will you respond? And you see, when God challenges us about our sinfulness, as he did with the Ninevites, he speaks to provoke a reaction. He exposes our sin so that we might know that we need his grace. No one is disqualified from God's mercy because of race, nationality, or history. If anyone responds to God's offer of grace and mercy in Jesus, then they are as acceptable as anyone else is on this planet. And it raises the, the question, well, is everyone given an opportunity like the Ninevites? That's not what we're thinking. Does God still send people to share his story? Is God's forgiveness really offered to all? Well, the rest of Jonah's story might shed some more light. See, the response of Nineveh was so genuine, it was so authentic that it changed God's heart toward those people. Chapter 3, verse 10. But you know what it did to Jonah's heart? It hardened it. It hardened Jonah's heart towards God. And so Jonah goes off in a sulk. 
And at the beginning of chapter four, we discover exactly why he didn't want to take this message to Nineveh in the first place. It turns out he was angry. Why was he angry? Because he knew how this story was going to end. Let me read Jonah 4, 2 to 3. Isn't this what I said, God? When I was still at home, this is what I tried, why I tried, what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, and there, here's the words why David chose that piece earlier. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God that you're slow to anger and you're abounding or you're rich in love. You're a God who relents from sending calamity. And I knew that. Now, Lord, take my life, for it's far better for me to die than to live. See, it turns out Joshua didn't run the Tarshish out of fear of what the Ninevites might do to him. The reason he ran the Tarshish was because he knew what God would do for the Ninevites. Jonah knew that his mission wasn't about ushering in God's vengeance on that city, but it was about enabling them to receive God's mercy. And you see, in our day, there are two equal and opposite dangers when it comes to bringing and sharing the gospel with people who don't know God. See, there are some Christians who it seems take some sort of rather sick pleasure in explaining how angry God is at people's sin. They seem to enjoy delivering the bad news of God's judgment far more than they enjoy explaining the good news of God's grace. And so they stick up things like God hates. Or let's burn a pile of other faith's holy books. And whatever we think, it just just to me, it doesn't sound anything like Jesus who goes down as a friend of sinners. But equally, there's another group of Christians who can be guilty of repackaging the message so that there's no kind of warnings, bad news, serious implications at all. So it becomes a feel-good religion that is all about raising your self-esteem which again doesn't sound like Jesus, who spoke more about hell and more about judgment than anyone else in Scripture. And therefore, we, we cannot withhold God's grace from others, but so too we cannot unilaterally offer grace to people who imagine they somehow deserve it in their own right. And we learn from Jonah that the difficult news that God asks us to deliver, and part of the whole gospel message is solemn, serious, difficult news, but we, we learn from the story of Jonah that the difficult news that he asks us to deliver can't be ignored, but neither, neither can it be over-egged. We have to share the whole message out of a sense of true concern. The bad news, if you like, the impending judgment that God asked Jonah to deliver. Why did God ask Jonah to deliver? Because it was out of concern for those people and for all nations. Please hear that. Jonah did not like the fact that God was indiscriminate with his love and his forgiveness. And he wasn't alone because all through Israel's history, God had to remind them, listen, you are to bless the outsider, bless your neighbors, bless the foreigners. But time and time again, they failed. 
And I struggle with this as well. Because I've been called to be salt and light to the whole world, and yet I find it difficult to love my enemy. And to share what we know of God's grace with my neighbor. But Jonah wasn't just annoyed that God was indiscriminate in his love and his forgiveness. As he sat outside the city, he was fuming. And into the bargain, it turns out that it's a roasting day, but God sends him some shade, courtesy of a vine. And for a moment, it says in the text that for a moment, as Jonah sits under the shade, he, he's happy. But Jonah has more lessons to learn because when God sent a worm, this is where the worm comes in, when God sent a worm to eat the vine, Jonah completely lost it. And he threatened to take his own life. And two weeks ago, we listened as Habakkuk trusted and praised God, even though the fig tree doesn't bud and there are no grapes on the vine. Habakkuk knew, you see, what God was doing and that what God was doing was the best for everyone, even when a whole nation's crops failed. Here, in sharp contrast, is a self-obsessed Jonah willing to curse God because his personal organic parasol has failed. And Jonah cannot cope as he sits there. He cannot cope as he watches the Ninevites basking in God's mercy while he sits on a hillside getting sunstroke. How does it work that God handpicks a nation for his very own and yet still loves other nations and offers them mercy? Jonah can't get his head around it. And he never resolves this paradox. And the book ends with him sitting there wrestling with it as God challenges him about why is he so emotionally connected with a short-lived plant whenever he should be far more concerned with a city of 120,000 lost men, women, and children. And it's a paradox that we're left to wrestle with. Because let's be honest, and this is where this gets hard for me. How many of us spend more time and money and energy worrying about the roof over our heads than about the hundreds of thousands of people who have never heard of Jesus? You see, maybe the answer to this paradox is more to do with us than we can ever imagine. Because let's rewind scripture for a moment. Because up to Genesis 12, the Bible records the story of the origin of the whole universe. And then the camera zooms in on one couple. And on one family. And on one nation. And in Genesis 12, Abraham has promised a son, but not just for his own benefit, it's for the whole world. So he says, I'll make you into a great nation, Abraham. And I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, God simultaneously focuses on one nation and on the whole world. He may have selected Abraham, but he was thinking of everybody. 
He chose one for the sake of the many. God is deliberately selective because he wants everybody to get the good news that God's love is both universal and particular. God's love is universal in that he loves everybody in the universe, but God's love is also particular. He chooses a particular couple from a particular ethnic group, and he loves them against all the odds, but his extravagant love is not exhausted on this one group. He's more to go around. And God always intended a mission for his people, and so he chose them, and he blessed them. Why? To be a blessing. And God chose one nation to be a means through which this grace is passed on. And as one missionary theologian writes, to be chosen means to be incorporated into God's mission to the world. To be the bearer of God's saving purposes for the whole world. To be the sign and the agent and the first fruit of his blessed kingdom, which is for all. You see, God delivers his message of reconciliation. How? Through his people, through us. And the book of Jonah is this invaluable reminder to the Israelites to share God's compassion for the whole world, to pass on what they have received. They have been blessed, but you've been blessed to be a blessing. And that's our commission. And the Bible is clear that everyone, regardless of their ethnicity, needs to seek God's forgiveness and mercy. I passionately believe that, but the important point is that God is not passively waiting for all the nations to come to him. God does not want any to perish. We know that from Scripture. We know that from the New Testament. And so what does he do? He sends, he's still sending his people to the four corners of the world to share and demonstrate his love. He still calls us to go. And the reason God pursued Jonah was because he wanted to get to Nineveh through him. And this divine concern for and commitment to the nations is evident throughout Scripture. And so starting with Israel, God sent his people into the world to be a blessing. And God continues to send his people into the world to share the good news of his grace and his forgiveness of the gift of his Holy Spirit and the challenge of his coming kingdom. And sadly, and this this is where it all unravels, sadly, time and again, the chain is broken. Why is the chain broken? Because of our indifference, my indifference. And our reluctance and our fear. And when we hold back, we betray our God-given identity as ambassadors, as prophets, as light, as salt, as stewards, as trustees, as co-workers with Christ. And so a huge part of the answer in response to this paradox is us. What about the people who have never heard? It's over to us. Why me and not them? Because God intends for me to love them. And what this paradox really does, and this is, I have been profoundly challenged by this this week. And what this paradox really does, or should do, I believe, is to encourage us to wrestle with our responsibility to share Jesus. Our responsibility to share God's news, wherever that takes us, whether it's over the road or halfway around the world, to ensure we're not the ones hiding our lights. God has sent us in the same way he has sent, he sent Jonah. And sometimes we don't do what we've been commissioned to do. And so people are dying without Christ.
But what you also need to realize and discover from Jonah that is God's not held captive by our unwillingness to join in his mission. God will accomplish his purposes. God will. Surely the judge of all the earth will do right. But the challenge for us is this. We do face a task unfinished, and Gordon referred to this this morning. And I know there is this global movement that's kind of like gathering a bit of pace that next Sunday, 21st of February, a number of churches all around the world are being asked to sing this hymn. It's an initiative that's kind of been inspired and, and prompted, I think, by OMF. And this is an OMF hymn, facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. A need that undiminishes, rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee, Renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. See, that's what it really kind of boils down to. Those of us sitting here this evening who are, who have been saved and rescued, God in his sovereign purposes has decided, it's, this is how I reach out. This is how my message gets out there through you and I. And so we're not going to sing this because we're going to hold that the next week. But we're just going to watch this very short video as we finish. It's an OMF video. Just lasts a couple of minutes. And then I'm going to pray. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know you, renew before your throne the solemn pledge we owe you to go and make you known. Where other lords beside you hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defied you defy you still today. With none to hear their crying For life and love and light Unnumbered souls are dying And pass into the night We bear the torch that flaming and from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours. Fired by the same ambition, to you we yield our powers. O Father who sustained me, O Spirit who inspired, Saviour whose love constrained me to toil with zeal and time. From cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake. For on your errand send us to labour for your sake. Let's stand together and let me pray as we close.
God, we want to thank you for those in, in our lives who shared your story with us. And God, I pray for us as we go from here. And we know, God, we, we passionately believe that you do not want any to perish. And you do love this whole world. But God, you have sent us and you send us as you sent Jonah to go and make disciples and to teach others everything you've commanded us. And so God, I pray for this task that is unfinished. And there's a sense in which we stand here and we, we may ask ourselves, why, why us? Why have you saved us? Have you chosen us? But God, you've chosen us to be part of the mission, to go and share Jesus with others. And so I pray for each Christian here this evening that you will inspire us to go, that we will go and make you known in word and deed, in our workplaces, in our homes across our streets, with our neighbors, in our schools, in our universities, and wherever you take us. Because God, you are gracious and you are compassionate. And you're slow down and you're so rich in love. And so we look to you, we trust you, we worship you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.